Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 131 today, Exogenesis with Bruce and Daniela Fenton. Um, And I just want to say Maurice is uh, off today. I'm going to be conducting this interview alone. Everybody stay safe out there. It's it's crazy. And uh, everybody just love each other, okay? I just want to say that. I just want everybody, you know, love thy neighbor. I know it's a commandment. Some A lot of people aren't religious, but I think that that's a good a good way to start with with all this is just love thy neighbor let's go from there just be peaceful and loving and and, and let's start let's start each day that way and go from there but uh i'm not gonna you know pontificate let's let's get on with the show this is mind escape so bruce welcome back we had you on not that long ago and welcome daniella for the first time and uh we are glad to have you back on the show Thank you very much. Appreciate you having us on. Yeah, thank you for having us on. No problem. Um, so you just recently came out with a new book. It got released a few days ago, um, and it's called Exogenesis, Hybrid Humans. The um, the foreword was written by uh, Eric Von Doniken. And for anybody that's not familiar, they can go back and watch the other episodes we've done with you. The last one we did was on ancient aliens and Gnosticism. And then the first one we did, we talked about your uh, into Africa theory and the, your theory of evolution, what you think went down. Uh, but this is a whole kind of a completely different end of the spectrum here. So why don't you give us a little bit of your uh, hypothesis with these hybrid humans and these ancient aliens? Sure, yeah. I mean, the books, so I think I'd call it fairly wide-ranging that we tackle at the core an ancient alien story, but it also begins with a bit of a look at the modern incidents that have obviously reverberated around the media with the Navy incidents. Uh, we take a look at that. Uh, we discuss SETI, you know, and the way that the search for, search for extraterrestrial intelligence has functioned over you know, well, over the years, not just necessarily now. Um, also, all sorts of things from, you know, contact events, of, of the experience of alien abductions that people, you know, purportedly have, uh, that's in there. Uh, but then, yeah, the very core is is the idea that we have been visited in the very remote past and that there has been manipulation of the genome. So it's both modern and ancient phenomena kind of mixed in together there within the, um, the boundaries of the, the project. Yeah, so <clears throat> the part of your uh, hypothesis about um, you you think that this happened sometime was seven um, seven hundred eighty thousand years ago. Is that the, the yes? Yeah. yeah, that's that's the main event. If you like, that's what I would posit as being the the engineering of the ancestors of Homo sapiens. Now, I don't preclude that there hasn't been other events. You know, both earlier and after and indeed i sort of i touch on very briefly the idea that i think there is some suggestive evidence of other modifications but the, the strongest evidence points to this event at 780 yeah that's uh i mean in the, the weird thing is didn't they just find some sort of uh impact event that happened around that same time 
Um, yeah, they did actually. Yes, yeah. I can go into that a bit if you like. Yeah. So that's kind of relevant. Mm-hmm. So before we get into that, though, why don't you mm-hmm. just give us what was the? Uh, I know you've been kind of on this this uh, hypothesis for a little bit now, but what was the catalyst for like doing this book the way you did it, and um, and and where do you think that this is going? Do you, do you have you know future plans to try and find more physical evidence or? Is this something that you just kind of go with the flow and see what comes out of it? Yeah, I mean, it came, well, it came out of a mixture of the the experiences and the research we were doing ourselves, but then that connected us to um, researchers over in Australia and a lady who had some experiences that you know provided the information, Lady Valerie Barrow and her book, uh, Outeringa, when the first ancestors were created, which ended up being kind of a source uh, it's kind of almost a guiding map of information to find some of the evidence. So that was that came out of a chain of events, really, where we'd had our own experiences, some kind of contact type experiences. Uh, was also I was researching some ancient mysteries that pointed to, you know, humans coming out of Australia, and obviously we we've tackled that in our conversation about the Forgotten Exodus, my previous work. And so it, it really that flowed into it in a kind of strange way because it was through that I connected with these other you know other people in Australia, and then found about this book, and then ended up realizing that there were elements of the story in that book which then meshed not only with our personal i guess knowledge and experiences but but particularly with an event i had back in 2003 which was during a sort of shamanic um altered state kind of journey that you know i had an experience where i did see you know i guess it's a remote viewing whatever bit of past life i don't know what you call it but i saw a craft you know coming to earth and i had the sense that there'd been this event you know explosion of this alien craft and so it was really good because i found that then that was actually discussed in valerie's book you know the idea that this had happened so on a personal level you could say it was a, a metaphysical uh, spiritual event that kind of compelled me to take her account more seriously um now i guess the average person would just be like well that's so much strangeness and woo but the way i've looked at that is well that's okay fine to have strangeness and like we all if you have any kind of metaphysical view or religion obviously there's a degree right. of strangeness in it. right so it's not exactly uncommon to take seriously some strangeness but what i wanted to do was of course was also to provide some substantiating evidence because otherwise it's to me it's not worth writing a whole book to repeat something that someone else has already said you know what i mean if otherwise i would just say read valerie's book you know make of it what you will right um Instead, I thought, well, look, you know, could I find evidence that would really back up the central claims in it? And that's kind of how the project got going was the idea that if this was genuinely a real kind of download of information from a, you know, non-human intelligence that, you know, then the way to prove that is to find substantiating objective evidence, you know, that would mesh with the story. And that that's kind of really what it was, that's the, the project in its, in a summary, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find your work interesting because you try, you know, you take an approach mm-hmm. that's, you know, look, 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 let's face it. We're both, you know, interested in the UFO and UAP mm-hmm. phenomena and ancient aliens. And um, while I don't believe any aliens actually built any ancient civilizations or megalithic structures, that when you look at, like, we talked about this mm-hmm. last time, stories from the Bible, uh, shamanic experiences, people having psychedelic DMT experiences and encountering aliens, I think it's... Mm-hmm it makes a little bit more sense when you come at it from that kind of a, um, uh, telescope or, a, a microscope and you're just getting in there and you're looking at all these moving parts as somebody that has done psychedelics. I actually, I'll, I'll ask Daniela this. 
do you mm-hmm. think that um do you think that there is something to that with the connection between aliens and psychedelics or altered states or do you think that um that's ourselves talking to ourselves maybe subconsciously what do you think's going on there I think psychedelics opens I guess it opens the gateway um, in a way and when you take certain psychedelics it's said in, in shamanic thinking that it stays with you for the rest of your life so it leaves you open I guess to experiences um, shamanism in general can have a very close tie into weaving with contact with beings from other places um, whether it be alien our own consciousness us in the future us in the past going around in different cycles revisiting ourselves um, that's all very closely tied together so I mean in sense of psychedelics and the you know alien experience overall I do believe that it's very closely linked and for people that do do psychedelics I think they don't necessarily have to do psychedelics to have the experience to have the contact but for the ones that do they probably have more of an intense I guess experience and and you know there is a lot of accounts of shamanic um, experiences where you know people have been in you know different places out in the open or in the jungle or in you know forests and they've seen a lot of things. So it does, I think, thin the veil very, very, very much. And so it allows an interchange between anything that, you know, is out there that wants to make contact in an easy way and, and just give us a download of information or participate in what we're doing here. So it is an opening of, you know, the channel so that that can happen. It does facilitate it. Mm-hmm. Um, I do believe that, yeah, it's very closely related. If not, it is part of shamanism really right do you think it could be something like you mentioned opening up like a channel kind of a thing do you think that maybe Mm -hmm. through um, i meditate a lot and once i started to meditate if you meditate and then fall asleep you almost instantly go or at least i do it induces lucid dreaming um so do you think it could be that psychedelics maybe open up that gateway where now you're aware of this other thing and you can kind of play off of that as well as receive, you know, vibration or message or whatever the case may be. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, with meditation, you're opening up your spirit really and you're sort of like letting go of the physical. So I think that when you do that, you're more in tune with whatever is receptive to you um, that we don't see. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, it can facilitate our experiences um, that way because it's like letting it's like letting loose the spirit or the soul you know to connect and to tap in to other sources and frequencies um, so yeah definitely has um, I, I guess it is a way of opening a door with meditation also or just you know being in that conscious state where you're relaxed and you're not so earthbound right. um, so I think that's one of the probably the bigger hints you know what meditation can be used for that some of the, um, I was going to say, some of the experiences people describe as well, you know, sound very much on the borders of a lucid dream. You know, I, I theorize myself that there's a, a state, you know, that exists between lucid dreaming and, you know, full wakefulness. You know, that there's something in the between where you're awake, but dreaming, you know, sort of dreaming awake, where if you look at some of the UFO encounters and other experiences, you know, they, they describe this sort of being out of space and time, but that, you know, you're still where you were, but there's a sense of no longer being there and that all the noises have stopped and almost like you've gone into another reality within that same space, which almost Mm -hmm. sounds a bit like 
a kind of a, the brain in a state of you know somewhere between lucid dreaming and full awakeness mm-hmm. now i don't know if um there's a recognized brain state for that or not but it definitely to me i suspect there's something that's not far off from the lucid dreaming experience you know that's involved in a lot of this contact stuff sure mm-hmm. yeah it's um it's interesting and i actually i had a conversation with my, one of my buddies yesterday um, and we were going back and forth and we were talking about like meditating. And I said, the longest I've ever meditated actively without falling asleep was probably three hours. And when I came mm-hmm. out of it, I was, I felt like an alien. I, everything felt foreign, even though I was in my own house, it was just yeah. a really weird experience. It's like, and there was a calmness mm-hmm. like a serenity that I had that I've never experienced in any other waking state. So mm-hmm. I think that there is something to that. I don't know. Mm. obviously uh you know i know everybody's different and people i know there's a lot of people that try and meditate that don't have success maybe they're too ad mm. or maybe they just don't have the focus or patience but i think that's something that you learn and cultivate over time too so people mm-hmm. that, that you if don't let the first couple times you know deter you from continuing that i think you have to keep pushing through until you get to the point where you can just jump right in um so mm-hmm. uh bruce now you um like I mentioned, I th- you know, Graham Hancock wrote the foreword to your first book into Africa. Eric Von Donneken wrote the foreword to this book. Uh, have you ever met him or is this just something that you guys went back and forth about? Um, uh, Graham, I've met at a couple of different events. Um, on, only know in that context, you know, having been to events where he was speaking and stuff. So I've, so I physically I've met him. Mm-hmm. Um, Eric, I have not physically met is just um connection was through our agent who does know him okay quite, quite well and so he, he was able to you know establish that um situation where um eric was able to do the forward so that was really cool so i didn't have a, a direct correspondence with him on that um right. i would like to have it'd be nice in the future if i could maybe get a chance to physically thank him, you know to, to him and say thanks for, for doing that and to have sure. a chat you know definitely i mean no, it's, it's for sure. I mean, um, do you think that uh, the whole ancient alien thing, obviously you've been on Ancient Aliens on History Channel, mm-hmm. um, yep. and uh, it's it's kind of like a, a you know, I don't know. I, I love Ancient Aliens, but then there's some things I'm like, oh, why are you doing that? But at the same time, they have other mm-hmm. things where it's like, that's a credible, you know, they're panspermia mm-hmm. episodes. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, yeah. so, so it's kind of like a mixed bag in that regard. Um, Definitely. When you um, going forward, do you think that that these things should be talked about in terms of let's weed out the BS or do you think just allow Mm -hmm. that to happen uh, or let the people decide that and just, you know, it's entertainment, but some people might, you know, what do you think about that whole topic? Well, I think, you know, one thing that would be helpful, and again, I don't know why exactly this hasn't happened, would have been as if History Channel had um create a second show you know almost like a spin-off you know with doing the lost civilizations because at the moment see lost civilizations and those some of the ancient mysteries that would be better suited to a non-aliens approach you know they get kind of lumbered into the show and mm-hmm. I, I mean and that's fine to, you know it's still interesting but i definitely think there's topics in there which would suit you know a separate kind of you know we have an ancient alien show and also a ancient lost civilization show you right. know what i mean that that would have, I think, would have worked better because then you're not having to, in some episodes where, you know, you have to kind of make a convoluted argument to put uh, what would seem to be a, like, you know, lost civilizations 
constructions right. or something into an alien context, right? Because because right. you know it's an interesting site or an interesting story that's associated with it, but not necessarily very convincingly alien. Right. Um, and it would be better off in a kind of a spin-off. And I, so I don't know. I'd hope to see that they do that at some point. And I know that I'm sure you'd like that. A lot of oh, researchers who who are involved in that topic would, I'm sure, be happy to go on such a show um so yeah i don't yeah i don't know why that hasn't happened that's my kind of thoughts on it is that yeah because sometimes the topics just they're interesting but i do think that yeah there's, there's ones where you think well that would be better off in a you know a lost civilizations ancient mystery show right yeah well they turn god of the gaps into alien of the gaps right i mean that's kind of what the whole thing yeah definitely i mean obviously that definitely happens i mean so yeah i think that and then like you said there's other episodes which obviously are very strong which yeah um, there's i've seen um, panspermia episodes where yeah. there's like legitimate scientists on where they're talking about the real aspects of the panspermia you know hypothesis it's just like i said i i just i think that you made a good point and i i do think that they should do that why not have two shows mm-hmm. they would be both very successful because people love uh, yeah. the megalithic sites all over the world and most people don't get to see them i mean that's how i was mm-hmm. introduced to gobekli tepe i didn't learn about that mm-hmm. in, in high school or college or you know that wasn't mm-hmm. something that even though i was in high school and college in the you know 2000s they we were still talking about like the basic history of the world there was no new finds or cool new megalithic structures that just got unearthed or anything like that so i think that um people love that stuff so why not have more of that out there i, I don't understand. exactly yeah and if they and if they need the equivalent of, of a giorgio that heads it up i'm available they just have yeah, to yeah they just have to give me a shout yeah. and let me know you're a so. walking atlas encyclopedia <laughs> dictionary and know it all I could jump in on that one. Yeah. Well, I mean, so. look, you know, you get people like you, you get people like Graham Hancock, you know, you can get all the ancient civilization, um, you mm-hmm. know, I, I hate to call it that, but that's what it is, is fringe researchers because the mainstream is yeah. not accepting of anything that's not the no. formal paradigm, uh, you know, so. That's right. Um, so there'll be plenty of people to do that. So, I mean, you know, maybe that'll happen in the future. But I have to say I'm quite pleased with the the episodes I've been featured on so far, which is, I think, about four um have been you know i liked them i'd say there was a couple of ones where you know i've learned a couple of things i mean there was the alien mountain which is a site in italy which to be honest i i'd never heard of before they right. contacted me and then you know had a bit of a dive into it and it is quite fascinating again you know it's one of those ones which is a crossover because it does have a link to you know ufo sightings and things like that but at the same time it very clearly links to stories of a lost civilization so i mean obviously there are crossover stories right, and, right. and in those again that was you'd think you'd have two shows look at the same site from different perspectives really because i mean that when it turns out you know there was a link back to a druid city that may have been destroyed by a flood and um and yeah really it was really quite fascinating you know and then the other ones i've done a couple which have been related to the the Pleiadian kind of connection which was really good because of course my book Mm-hmm. Um, does tackle that i mean so i mean that it was kind of i guess nice that i ended up in a couple of shows which were i guess you say hyper relevant yeah the one book. which one i thought the, oh it was the one the uh hawaiian one where mm-hmm. you were talking yeah. but you were talking about like lemuria and a couple other things on there yeah, yeah that, the islands of fire that yeah, one, yeah, that yeah. That, that, yeah um, I, that I personally didn't really you know as you might have noticed i didn't personally talk about lemuria because i'm skeptical of the lemuria I don't, kind of side of it. Yeah, I mean, other than myself. listening to Rudolf Steiner talk about it a mm-hmm. little bit, I don't really, um, I've, I haven't really entertained it that much. Like, I think Atlantis, if you're going to go hypothetical mm-hmm. lost civilizations, I think Atlantis has a lot more evidence to suggest that it probably yeah. was a real ancient yeah. 
you know, widespread civilization at some point, you know. Yeah, I'm of the opinion when you have topics like that, you're better off just saying, you know, either a flooded land or a lost civilization, because unless you definitively have an ancient name that's been passed down mm -hmm. uh, or a local culture definitely is using that name for some period, you know, not, not hasn't been influenced by modern sources, you know, then I don't see the gain in using a, a term which probably didn't exist, you know, mm -hmm. 5,000 years ago or 10,000 years ago. Um, I think that just muddies the waters. Because if I start saying it's called Lemuria and I've got no source um, that doesn't go back more than a couple hundred years, then why is it called Lemuria? You know, if it was there 5,000 years ago and the name has appeared recently, right. then it wouldn't have been called Lemuria. So th those were, I, you know, I was sort of aware. I didn't personally talk about there being a Lemuria there. But, you know, it was a good episode to be in. I certainly, there was other aspects I was quite happy to talk about, you know, the the Hawaiian gods and their possible link to, you know, extraterrestrial visitation uh, and the fact that, you know, the, the Hawaiians have legends that are suggested that, including sort of creation stories that sound like they are relating to contact. So, I mean, obviously, there's always, you know, there's always elements. If you look into local law, that's where you often do find, you know, stories that are to do with contact events and stuff. And that's that's really cool. You know, you get the local legends of, you know, the gods or visitations and stuff. Right. Uh, which for me is fine. The other side of it, yeah, you know, I left to other people <laughs> that have sure. opinions, you know. And that's a good thing about the show, though, to be honest, as well, is that, you know, they, you're not forced to kind of say, come on, we really need you to say, I think Lemuria was an alien spaceship. You right. know, there's, there's nothing like that, you know, it just... Well, they do an interview, right? And then they take the parts that they want to mm -hmm. like, feed into the mm -hmm. episode, right? And I... Absolutely, it's st yeah, it's still you talking it. about it. It's just they took part of the whole thing you did, right? Is Exactly. Yeah, I was there for a couple. Of, I'm there for a couple of hours answering questions for probably three or four episodes. You know, um, so there's a lot of lot of you know B-roll somewhere right. uh, of me answering all kinds of questions. So yeah, and then they just select from that the little bit that they think fits. Now that being said, though, I will say this: doing we Maurice and I, I put a, together a slideshow and did research on Easter Island and talking about the mainstream paradigm or the mainstream hypothesis of what happened versus the alternative hypotheses. And then doing that, I noticed there are features um, that almost look like land bridges if you pull up Google Earth or Google Maps and really zoom in around Easter Island. It looks like it could have been connected to land at some point. There's at least ridges. Um, that if there was some flood, maybe that used to be super low before, kind of like Sundaland or Doggerland or one of those. So um, mm -hmm. I don't think it's impossible in, in the ancient past. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know how yeah. long ago, but I don't see it be. But to call it, like you said, to call it Lemuria when it could have just been some sort of a land bridge that early hominids or you know maybe even later and and people were going back and forth i, I guess i could see mm -hmm. that but uh yeah and we can't even know if you know when you go back twelve thousand years let's say we don't know if any of the lands really had names unless you you've got a good solid way to trace back language and trace back terms you know names it's very hard to know what any land masses were called twelve thousand years ago by the you know the indigenous peoples in each site isn't it i mean who knows? You know, right. who knows what they called the UK back then or what, you know, what the US would have been called. You know, we, we just don't know, do we? I mean, so I don't think it's helpful. So I was putting like Lemuria or Moo or anything. So even Atlantis, I was thinking you know, that I'm wary. I think it's better in these in these topics. I'm to say that, you know, I believe that there was a lost you know, land mass uh, in Southeast Asia or you believe there was a lost land mass in um, such and such. It, and it might correspond to some of the stories that refer to lands called such and such. But that, you know, I, I think if you say there was an Atlantis, then you still have to, you know, you're sort of really pitching yourself right. to that horse, you know, you know? and 
Um, I'm wary of that now. You know, the only thing. The only thing about Atlantis, though, is that um, Solon went to Egypt, uh, and I think he learned the story of Atlantis from a, an Egyptian priest called Sankis. And um, who knows how long the Egyptians had that knowledge, too. Now, you're right, they could have created it. But I think that that one holds a little bit more water than other ones in the sense that that name was preserved through a few different ancient mm-hmm. civilizations. So I think yeah. that, that that one's interesting. Now they still could have created Agreed. it, but at the same time there is precedent, you know, the Crataeus and the Timaeus, and then it being passed on from ancient Egypt to ancient Greece. So um, who knows? I think there's a clue, and I don't want to too much, I know we're going to talk about this stuff, but I think there's a clue in the story though, that this is not an accurate telling um, because, you know, they, they obviously were told that the ancient Greeks were at the heart of this story, you know, and they fought bravely and, you know, that, but we know there was nothing that we could refer to as Greece back then. Again, we come to that problem, you know, right, that right, these right. names are thrown around, but there's no way that 12,000 years ago that the Greeks of, um, you know, of Athens were fighting bravely against the Atlantic. It, it doesn't stack up. Right. So what you really have there is a kind of Chinese whispers where, you know, to keep a story going, you put either the either the Egyptians were smart enough to know well how do we get these people to you know take this and keep it going we'll, we'll put them into the mix or the Greeks adapted it themselves to make it a story more about them which if you're going to pass down a story to your later you know future offspring it makes sense that you're going to include some aspect of yourself otherwise you're going to be like why are we even carrying this story it's not about us you know what I mean so I, I I think we can understand why that that is but then it also reminds us that this isn't a 100% carbon copy accurate story being passed down that the Greeks are suddenly involved at the heart of the story when it becomes a Greek story right, right, right. now and I think that is a clue to us that this is a way uh, there's a mechanism of handing it down is that you know even the teller or the person listening includes an aspect that will make it re- hyper relevant for those that it's being transferred to. So the story keeps on going. So, you know, who knows what the, the accurate first telling of that story was, right? Because maybe the Egyptians got included into it by somebody else, you know, so they passed the story down. Um, I think so that's absolutely the right. You have to remember that stories change a little bit yeah. over time or can be deliberately changed. I think you're right. And I think that, uh, you, and you make a good point. I, I think though, when you look at it, that, I mean, it makes sense because the Greeks did that with other things too. You know, the Greeks went mm-hmm. to Egypt, they learned metaphysics, they learned mathematics. Um, mm-hmm. even Thales went there and was the first person to measure the height of the great pyramid as a Greek person. I mean, I'm sure the Egyptians obviously knew what they yeah. were doing, but, um, and you look at stuff like that and they're taking that knowledge back to their own civilization and saying, I'm, I'm sure that they, they gave credit to the people at mm-hmm. the time. You know, a lot of these philosophers mm-hmm. based on their philosophies seemed like moral, ethical people. Um, yeah. but at the same time, you're right. Everybody adds their own little spin, right? So yeah, it's a little bit of the game of telephone and it's a little bit of, uh, maybe, personal in, invention based off of inspiration as well you know maybe they, they added a little yeah. twist themselves so yeah that makes well, I sense i think it's true because i think story what is story for i mean that's another thing we you know for about you know in more recent times that we have to ask you know, what is the value because we have history sometimes for the sake of history you know where we have this idea that you just need to you know we need to know the past and you can learn from the past or or we have it just as of an educational activity you know that you have to have some history and some physics and some stuff but i mean if we really think in 
what is a story for? Most of the time it's to inspire people or it's to inform you something about the cohesive nature of your tribe or your group or, you know, or to explain away something you'd waste your time thinking on by having a quick answer. Or, you know, there's some reason for that story. Right. So I think that in these cases, a lot of time you, you have those stories to inspire people within your culture. You know, so what's more inspiring than, you know, that we were the great warriors that fought, you know, bravely and that that's us with the brave Greeks, the great masters. You know, I mean, that makes sense because you're giving people these cohesive narratives that, you know, we're timeless. Uh, we stretch back into the past and we've done all these great things. And story has to serve a purpose. And I don't think that, you know, we should look at oral histories as being a huge effort to tell absolutely you know pinpoint accurate narratives about the past i think mm -hmm. that they stuck around because they were serving purposes you know like the indigenous australian law a lot of the time you know, the stories were to do with knowing where features were on the landscape you know you had these like mind maps so you know the story might include all sorts of fantastical characters right. but it was guiding you through the outback and stuff to waterholes and, you know, and, and out of mountain ranges without getting killed and stuff that these stories, you know, yeah, they were fun to listen to at the campfire, but they also served a purpose, you know, and in other things, they would warn you about certain dangers or things you could eat. And, you know, so right. I think that we've kind of lost touch with the idea of, of story, history stories for purposes other than just simply saying, Oh, we're doing to repeat the past if we haven't learned it. And that that's about as far as we go with, you know, stories serving us. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that that's something perhaps that we have become a bit disconnected from that is a bit too academic and dry. The idea of just, we, well, we need to know exactly what chemical went into the pot shard, you know, and that's, mm -hmm. I don't think that's what history, sh the flavor of history should be about, you know, that 100% accuracy on the story. Um, I think it should be, like, you know, how does that story serve the culture? Why are we carrying it forward? You know, because there's a lot of history right. that won't be carried forward. No one knows everything that's happened and you can't possibly learn everything that's happened so it's always a selective process isn't it what do we carry forward and what do we just forget about yeah you make an interesting point actually i agree with you and so while we're on egypt and greece i mean socrates was not a fan of writing things down and everything we know about socrates is from plato and well i guess mm -hmm. xenophon too xenophon just portrayed socrates as kind of a wise old man while you look at what plato did and he took that and, you know, you look at the Republic and some of these uh, dialogues and they're unbelievable. They're still better than most literature we have today. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, there is you could look at where, you know, from one aspect, the oral tradition, you're right. It kind of evolves. Maybe we need that again because maybe the exact narrative mm -hmm. is just a perspective in that moment in time. And it doesn't allow for any sort of flexibility or interpretation. It kind of just is what it is. Right. So, yeah. Um, yeah, you make a good point, and I don't disagree and, with you. And that sort of loops around, in a way, to to this book, because, again, when you look at creation stories, I mean, creation stories obviously range across the planet, but they also range within the, you know, what we call, I suppose, developed world, westernized nations, or whatever we want to call that, that we have a few different creation narratives as well, because, of course, you know, if we look at the origins of all life on the planet, we have a story Right, an unproven story, like well, a couple of different ones. One being that essentially, you know, a deity uh, manifested everything, created. You know, there's a creation period. Depending on what your background beliefs are, different different deity or deities. But there's a kind of you know a magical creation story or stories. And then you also have, of course, in science, this preferred narrative of abiogenesis. 
that chemical and geological processes somehow produced the first simple life forms, you know, perhaps from uh, debris from comets containing um, organic matter and, and then chemicals in a pool and lightning and whatever else. But that's a story, too. And we know that that is not something that is you know, scientific in the sense that we've contested. I mean, any attempts to test that idea have failed. We've never been able to produce anything on the lines of life in a test tube, right? Um, so it's not really testable. So it's so, not yes. truly science. Somebody, I believe it's Stanley Miller, did do tests, and it took like years for it to produce. Now, um, it didn't produce life in a test tube, no. but it did produce some building blocks, I know. Mm -hmm. But then there's people that uh, argue that the test could have been flawed and it hasn't been recreated and then you yeah. get into that whole thing and then you you know you even look at peer review. it should be repeatable if right, it's right. science again so, so it's like the thing about science i don't like is is they put stuff out there saying theory 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 when it's really hypothesis 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 and it does need to be recreated and done and um and and verified and then you also, but then it, it, they only do that when it suits them. So when they see something that maybe they can't explain that is repeatable, let's say, um, you know, let's just say somebody that smokes DMT and every time they smoke DMT, they go into this alternate universe and they're experiencing these entities and they can do it every single time or most times and maybe even half the time they have breakthroughs. Well, that's repeatable. Something's going on. It might be. Mm -hmm. um, subjective or anecdotal, but it's still real. Mm -hmm. So what does that say? You know, that's the problem mm -hmm. I have with all this stuff is it's only applied to the outside objective reality or if that even exists. Yeah. And that's problematic. And, and the truth is as well, in some of these shared sort of psychical or, you know, altered state experiences, people are having communal experiences, right? So mm -hmm. it's not always totally subjective in as much as it's only in one person you know it's one person's account or experience but that you know people doing the same say taking ayahuasca together and then saying you know that we're all seeing beings standing around the edge of the fire you know the same beings i mean so what about that then you know because that is a should be a problem for the for the materialistic reductionist right because if you're saying it's entirely some kind of dream state well, it's funny that, you know, you get sometimes, you know, group four or five people, you know, they took the same thing and they're seeing the same visionary phenomena. You know, they're seeing the same beings or the same serpent or whatever at the edge of the camp. What's that then? You know, if that <laughs> if right. you're just dreaming, how come you'd all be having the same communal dream or hallucination? Right. Because otherwise you start questioning again, what's reality? Is it a shared dream hallucination? How do you differ that? Because if you say five people are seeing a glowing serpent going along, um, and the same five people they saw the you know the bus that they came in you know what's the real difference objective it should be multiple people observing the same thing reporting back in the same way that's objective an objective reality right now if there are five people also then say we all saw this, this glowing serpent that's an objective reality of some sort right mm -hmm. whether it differs in nature or structure to the other one fine but you're still getting an account where these people are saying they're seeing the same thing um and that often that gets ignored a lot and um, you know we've personally had those kind of experiences mm. collective experiences mm -hmm. with san pedro when we lived in in ecuador you know where you do have the same phenomena going on for you so i i think there is a question mark there as well that it's convenient for the skeptics to kind of say oh well you know it's one person in their head but okay no, it's not it's always impossible. one person it's often it's groups of people having overlapping experiences or as you know in the DMT experiment, the people going into these realms and reporting, even if it's individually, reporting seeing the same beings and stuff, you know, mm -hmm. in the same place and things like that. So um, what the heck is that? You mm -hmm. know, and again, that loops around. Right. One, like, one thing that everyone has in common 
who have these experiences, they all say to us, it feels more real than where we are when we come back out of that experience. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the hyper-reality. The hyper-reality yeah. feel, feels more real. And this obviously this frequency that we're in every day um, feels a lot more dense, a lot more heavy, a lot more sluggish, and that the other one feels much more realistic to, you know, to everyone that we've um, spoken to about these things. So in terms of that hyper-real sort of, feel to it doesn't it so then the question is you know what's what is real if you could say something feels more real it's like what is real you know so mm. again the even right. being, something being real or reality is subjective and because you can say there's some other state that feels more real mm-hmm. whatever real is right mm. probably they're picking up also that you know there's probably less of a manipulative experience because i think it's more a pure uh, communion of some kind so probably that's what they're picking up and like where we are now because things are so controlled and so saturated and so out of what you know they should be um if you go back to you know ancestral you know as we were talking about before the storytelling and you know the ideas of keeping like old traditions alive that because we're so far away from it when you step into that other situation with that other reality that feels more real that's probably where you're linking into the old ways yeah, I was going to ask you too, Danielle, do you think that these, when people see these entities, now people see different things. Some people see aliens, some people see religious figures, some people see mm-hmm. just geometric loving patterns. Do you think that it's based on your own psyche and where you're at or what's the filter? Like, Because some people do see same things and then they see different things the next time or you know, they'll see aliens, but I'm sure it's not the same alien exactly as this other person. Mm -hmm. So do you Mm -hmm. think that, um, these are external entities that are, that are just all different, or do you think that it's our filter perceiving these things in different manners, almost like a Jacques Fillet passport to Magonia or something along those lines? Well, it could be um, a couple of things. I mean, yeah, one, it could be your belief system or what you sort of like have grown up with any, you know, kind of influence that you've had. The other thing is that in shamanic terms, like there's always a saying that each plant or each um, element is different that you consume or that you use to get yourself to that experience and that the plant will only give you as much as you can handle. So we'll never tip you over the edge where you can't handle a situation. So both, you know, being like a, one being part of who you are, your belief system, the other one being part of a learning experience, combine that together and probably you will see what you're supposed to see at that moment and that teaching for that moment will be very specific for you and probably you know if there is a collective um teaching it could you know expand out to other people but at the same time i also think that you know with the way that you know that these entities contact us they can appear to us in any form Mm. so they've got that ability you know as you know then you go into talking about like people that shape shift or you know beings that you know look different from you know this time to next time so i mean i think that they can sort of like change the way that they come to us or they appear to us some people might see aliens other people might see angels other people might see you know god knows what you know so it just depends on you know what you're able to process at the same time how open you are and then at the same time the teaching at that specific moment Hmm. and again that sort of i think goes back to the the fundamental because again if you're you know is something a, a distinct alien being or is it an aspect of us i mean then you you end up back at that well what is the fundamental nature of reality you know if because if the fundamental nature of reality is 
a unified field of consciousness, which, you know, in shamanic thinking and also in physics as well to some degree you have that idea it's not just an idea it's very hard to not see it like that mm-hmm. i mean if you go to the you know the subatomic the quantum level there's no real way to distinguish anything from anything else right so even saying anything and anything else it becomes a bit meaningless right that we just have almost like a an energy vibration if you want mm-hmm. um that there is no no other thing so then in these experiences on one level, you can say that there are other beings in the same way that we can say there's other people here. But then we also know that in another sense, a deep sense, there's not really other people here because there's no point where we're not joined, right? You know, if we look at the subatomic level, you can't tell my leg from the air around it or the desk that the table's on. You know, once you go down to that level, there is no way to tell anything in this perceived room apart. So therefore, I'm also connected to you and everyone listening to the show and to Danny. And, you know, so that has to apply in that other reality, too. So if we say, could they be an aspect of us that we're seeing or could they be distinct aliens? It's like, well, yes and yes and no and no. You know, because, again, I think a lot of these topics it always depends on, well, do you want to look at it in the the zoomed out view or the zoomed in view? Mm-hmm. Right. And from an ultimate zoomed out perspective, then there's no there's no other beings. There's no one else. There's. There is just this seamless consciousness. You know, I would say is the fundamental principle is an underlying consciousness. Now, for the materialists and the reductionists, you know, they would say, no, no, because consciousness comes from, you know, complex brains that have come out of this long process of evolution of matter. And, you know, OK, well, if you go down that route, then you lock yourself into a view. You have to say that. But then once you look again at that quantum reality, it's very hard to stick with that idea because what's it building out of? It's building out that oneness again. So I think it's inescapable in a way to end up at a point where you have to say that, yes, the beings are both you and something distinct at the same time. And you have to almost hold with a double think. Right. right. And that's where I think most of people go a bit uh, insane with some of these topics and with sure. the experiences, you know, that you can have period, obviously periods of breakdown and insanity are part of the shamanic law and the shamanic experience. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that And that also happens when some people don't recover in this lifetime. You know, no. they have something so intense happens or the set and setting is very wrong. Uh, the way things have been done are very wrong and they will have a kind of break. It doesn't mean they won't be able to live the rest of their life in some sense of functioning, but they will carry that as a kind of a psychic damage, you know, throughout the rest of their life because of grappling with that. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's hard to grapple with the idea that you are both the other and you know and yourself and and you know, all those ideas without especially having them directly uh, happening now because you, you know we can have a conversation about it on here people can think well it sounds far out or it sounds true or, or whichever but if you're in the experience and you have no choice but to know these things then when you come back from the experience you know you're not really going and coming anywhere right you're still you your experience is a continual flow of your experience so then you go back to the experience of your bedroom and you know being back to your daily self right but you now have that direct experience of knowing that you're also the other and the universe and these beings and you know well that's a lot to process in the contracted day-to-day mind and i say it's not surprising that sometimes that's um overwhelming and can take a lifetime to process yeah i mean most of this stuff obviously kind of hovers around the hard problem of consciousness because Mm -hmm. 
the experts can't disprove anything because they don't know what's going on. And the people that are doing this kind of research and talking about these kinds of things feel like they have a better understanding of it um, because of, like you mentioned, like personal experience and actually having weird things happen. Um, and for me, my thought is I've never had anything happen in like day to day. I mean, a couple, couple things in day to day consciousness yeah. that are really, really weird. I've talked about them on the show before, so I won't go mm -hmm. into that. But, um, but most of the weird things that have happened have been in altered states, whether, um, you know, psychedelic use or, uh, meditation, lucid dreaming, mm -hmm. you know, these are all ways to kind of escape. And you're right. Even if I tried to convey that to somebody, they're not going to know what the hell is going on. So, I mean, it's just, we're at mm -hmm. a point where, um, I think we just have to get information out there and then hopefully somebody will step up and maybe look at these things. And, um, I, I, I know science doesn't like to speculate on things out there. So hopefully we start seeing some more scientists take some risks. You know, that's, I mm -hmm. just, that's the only thing I hope with science is that we just see more people taking risks. Cause I think that, you know, when you push the boundaries or you shoot, you shoot, a um, a further shot, there's a better chance of maybe finding something in the middle, you know, maybe not completely out there, but maybe halfway that actually makes sense that can be quantified or at least tested. Mm -hmm. So, well, yeah. And look, and again, that loops back around to the book. I mean, this is both a, story you know there's a story at the heart of it uh, it's not just a, you know some sort of textbook right it's a story it's a creation myth right that was got science with it but it's also a creation myth that links to older creation myths mm -hmm. stories of the pleiades and beings coming here are not a new idea you know it's not a new telling in that respect you know that we have cultures all around the planet you know, native americans uh, people that have you know indigenous australians uh, the, the indigenous cultures in Southeast Asia, there's people in the jungles about the Amazon. So they will tell you about, you know, an ancestral origin, even the Pleiades, or a link with divine beings from the Pleiades, visitors from the Pleiades. But this is an old, old mythology, right? This is something that was almost, I would say, universal. The Sumerians depict the seven stars, you know, they're the symbol of the goddess um, Ishtar. Ishtar, you know, who's a key player in their stories. They have this a visitation story, sounds like seven beings, he's Anunnaki with seven ships. And all. Right, so th these, this is a narrative that's really fundamental and fairly universal. Mm. Now, was the Opkalu, is there seven Opkalu too? I think there is. Yeah, the seven, yes, it keeps popping up. You've obviously got these the seven mermaids that lived at the site at Mecca, where now you have, obviously, they transferred from the pagan belief systems across to Islam. But that site was there was a lake or a stream which was just connected to seven ladies in the water. I mean, the seven uh, and these seven mermaids you find depicted in indigenous Australian um, mythology. They're mm -hmm. depicted as Pleiades ladies are having um, fish tails. The fish goddess is universal. You'll find even here where we are in Wales that the lakes here have this fish goddess in them. And so, so these these themes that we're touching on with our work and topics that connect to them that we don't necessarily spend much time on or don't talk about at all in the book, but do connect are really foundational for the human experience. You know, I think if you were to, if you were to take information from this book and you went back 12,000 years, maybe even 50, 60, 70,000, and you could communicate with the people, I wouldn't be surprised if you find them saying, oh, yes, yes, well, you know, we know mm -hmm. about the ladies. Oh, we know about the women right. in the water. But these are some of the oldest narratives. I mean, because they're, mm -hmm. they're everywhere. And, you know, if somebody's everywhere, there's two options. They're free. Either they have a common source, 
that's very old mm-hmm. and goes back to when we, you know, as modern humans populated the world and carried our stories with us, right? Or some somehow you have a kind of, you know, sh- people moving around, meeting each other later, learning from each other, you know, picking up these stories from trade networks and all the rest of that and this kind of diffusion idea, mm-hmm. right? Or there is some way that this is spontaneously happening everywhere, which whether that's just coming out of the human mind or is visitation from beings telling you the story. I mean, essentially, you have three, three options there. Um, but somehow these have become narratives that are basically universal. Uh, also, now we are in a position to match science with them. And I've always thought, you know, we are heading towards a point where science and spirituality have to kind of come back together. Right. So part of this book is that as well is that you know you could just have the story and in some respects valerie's book is that it's offering you the story again in a i suppose in a repackaged form that would suit the open-minded um metaphysically inclined spiritual person right because you could just read her book not look at our research and if you were open-minded to those topics you'd probably go away quite happy and say oh you know wow that's the story of what happened how we were made but in some respects, it's not different to going to church and being told, you know, the gods made us in their image and such. And, you know, if you're happy with that, then you don't need any evidence. Right. You just you're happy with it and you go home. Now, But for some people, neither of those scenarios are enough. You know, you want. You, yes, you like the story and all the rest. But to to take it deeply into yourself mm-hmm. and to have meaning in a greater sense of instructing on who you are and maybe how you should be and where you're going that you want some objective physical evidence. Well, this book brings those two parts together, some very strange metaphysical, um, psychical information or topics and ideas are discussed, but also with objective science, and quite a lot of objective science based on researchers that are respected academics. Um, And it does those both. But I don't expect to then also include people that are rigid, materialistic, you know, um, very hard-nosed objective scientists, because you're probably not going to reach them with a story that has even a whisper of, of the mystical in it, right? So I understand right. that. But this is the kind of a middle way. So for people that are, are looking for a middle way, um, that's what this book is. If you want to go to one of those other, I guess you could say, the extremes where you don't feel you need any evidence, then, well, there's plenty of information out there from channelings or from religious texts. You don't need to then read a middle way book, I suppose, really. Right. Um, and then on conversely, if you are so sure there's nothing beyond atoms and you know and yeah. physical material then you're not going to read these kind of books either so what we're doing is bridging the gap for those that prefer to have that gap bridged you know hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So when you look at um, your book, obviously let's we can talk a little bit more now about your your Mm -hmm. hypothesis. So you you have physical evidence or these are what mm-hmm. uh, silica spheral or sphere you know sphericals or what 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 is it exactly again yeah sure it's um well it's a combination but mostly silica they are called tectites mm. now there's let me think i think there's four tectite strewn fields which are sites 
large, wide distributed tech type sites where you have homogenous material collectively across a fairly wide area. So you know it's from one event, mm-hmm. like either one object or one event. Now there's four of those in the world. So the first thing you get from that is that they are, <laughs> it's rare, mm-hmm. right? Because you know the planet's been around for 4.6 billion years. There's all sorts of things that have happened to it, but we only have four tech type strewn fields, okay. right? So if you think of it like that, first of all, you know there's something weird about all of them. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't go too much into the three of them, but I do briefly touch on one of the others actually, which is the Moldavite side, which I discussed very briefly because Moldavite is an interesting one because it's this green stone that looks almost like a kind of um, uh, what's the green jewel? I'm thinking. Emerald. Oh. Yeah, it looks like a kind of emerald. And the funny thing about that is it's linked with the Grail. Some people call it the Grail Stone, mm-hmm. and in fact, some of the, the Grail stories say that it was a a green stone mm. or a cup made of green stone, right? And the, some of the Welsh stories, I think they're in, it actually just says it's a green stone, the grail. Now, also you have the Emerald Tablet stories, right? A green stone again. Yeah. Um, Danny's had some experiences in her shamanic kind of journeys where she has seen Emerald Tablets under a site in, in Mexico. But this green stone theme is repeats. And then you look and you have this strange green stone that is definitely related to an extraterrestrial event. I mean, there's no there's no doubt on that. You know, science accepts that the creation story of that material involves an extraterrestrial event. Now, I don't necessarily mean an intelligent extraterrestrial event, but the the source for it is something coming from out of this world that leads to this material. Now, whether you say it's an impact or crash or a ship explodes or whatever it is, this is extraterrestrial in some sense. And funnily enough, this material seems to be considered very important and it's like a, the grail and you know, information carrying material and all this so you have a, a mythology around around that site around that's in um bavaria where you find this the moldavite moldovia and bavaria okay. germany right now that's a relatively small strewn field i mean anyone can look up on a map and they'll see the moldavite strewn field now the one that I'm particularly interested in is the Australian one, which is, well, not just Australian, but the Australite strewn field, which is primarily Australian, but it actually stretches all the way from Antarctica up to southern China, with some indication that possibly some small spherules made all the way up to Tibet. Mm. So, I mean, we're talking about a vast area. I mean, the estimate is somewhere between 10 and 30% of the planet's surface has some amount of Australite tectite. Mm. So... I mean, that has to kind of sink into people yeah, think about the size of the planet. And then you think maybe 10, 20, 30 percent of it, you know, it has some of this material. This is not a standard event. This is not like a normal event that scores this because we've had all kinds of impacts. Right. Right. And don't know of any that have have left debris scattered across 20 percent of the planet's surface. So what, what about like, though? So so there's no natural cause that you could find or think of that like not no volcanic activity ancient volcanic activity ancient you know um asteroid or meteor there's nothing that you know of that could create this kind of you know these tectites sure the the two competing when they first when western scientists european scientists first discovered some of these in in australia there was some thoughts that maybe they were man-made, you know, having looked at other tectites elsewhere, not necessarily those, but they had thought at first that these tectites might be man-made, possibly from earlier studies of the ones in Moldova. So I'm not quite sure if it was from the Australians, but they had theorized that, but they realized that, you know, after some analysis that no, that these were definitely not 
human-made. Mm. Uh, then there was some some speculation that they could be volcanic in origin. The australites may have been from a volcanic process. That was carefully researched and eventually dismissed. Um, so the two competing theories for the last few decades were that it was either there had been an impact on the moon and that a piece of lunar crust had sort of been melted and broken off mm. and that this debris had then traveled through space and had rained down on Earth. And then the competing theory to that was that that no, an asteroid had hit somewhere in Southeast Asia and had somehow thrown off this colossal amount of debris that had then, you know, fallen all across from Southeast Asia across to Australia and into Antarctica. Right? And those for decades have been the two leading hypotheses. Um, and the reason why you've got two competing hypotheses there is because neither one explains all of the observed evidence, but each one can explain some of the observed evidence that the countering argument can't, right? Mm. And yet each of them also is left with anomalies that are not explained by either hypothesis. And so this is why this is an ongoing mystery. This is not been, academics do not consider this solved. You know, you can, you can see that now that the favorite hypothesis is the impact theory. And the reason for that is because, you know, more recently we've had the ability to analyze lunar materials you know, in more detail, mm -hmm. and the australite tectite didn't mesh well with the the known lunar rocks, right? Right. So obviously that severely weakened a lunar hypothesis. So the default was to say, well, then it must be the impact, right? Because you've only got two, you've only got two to play with, particularly if you are a, a skeptic of anything more, you know, <laughs> unusual mm -hmm. than that. Right. So you're you're left with a default that even though you know that your hypothesis can't explain the observed evidence, it becomes the theory because it's the only the only model now that it, that tackles most of the evidence in an explainable way. Right. And so you can say, well, we have this theory. There's a few bits we can't fit into it yet, but maybe we'll find a way to fit them in later. But this is you know, this is the consensus theory. Now, why isn't it? Correct. I can tell you why it isn't correct. There's a few different things. There's there's something called um, I forgot this right. I think it's called um, I may have to check this, but I think it's Moore's law. But essentially, there's a there's a law in, t in terms of how you make glass, right? Mm -hmm. That when you when you make if you want to have a homogeneous glass without much you know, bubbles in it, right? It takes time. It takes time. A lot of heat, time to release those gases and to release these bubbles. And there's a particular processes you do to make clear glasses and stuff, right? And homogeneous glasses. And it takes some time with extreme heat. Now, with an impact, you don't have time. You have extreme heat, you have pressure and all of that. And of course, there's plenty to melt rock and turn it into these mineral glasses. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mesh well with Moore's law that you'd end up with this homogenous material, which you see in tech in these these particular tectite strewn fields, not just in the Australite side, but also in, you know, we talked about already this the the Moldavite and stuff, that it does not mesh at all well with those quick flashbang kind of heating because instead you have a very homogeneous material without much sort of bubbles of gas in it and stuff. And they said that with Moore's law that doesn't fit and they said that it looks more like something that's been heated over time in the way that we heat glass so that was a problem and then, so then you have to say well how can the australite end up being this almost uniform material which is about 75 percent to 80 percent silica with around 10 to 12 percent aluminium and then a few other trace metals and it's got like iron and tungsten and mm -hmm. uh, other metals in there but very uniform you know and it's all this kind of a very dark greeny brown glass it looks black but if you cut it into slices it's a kind of greeny brown translucent material 
Now, so it breaches a, one of the laws that we have of how these materials are created. Now, when they were looking a bit more into that, they also realized that if you have these particular shapes, which are called tectite buttons, which are unique to the australite strewn field. So this is when we start to separate away from it, are there any other tectites? Because there is no other site that produces these. We just have them from the Australasian strewn field. And they are uniquely actually across, almost totally uniquely across the southern part of Australia, right? So even with this vast strewn field, you only find the tectite buttons there. And they look like the nose cone of a, of a rocket ship or something, if you imagine, but very small or like a, like a button. That's why they call them buttons. Okay. But they're shaped aerodynamically, right? You can look at it and you can see this has come from space. Okay. okay? It's, it's, so NASA scientists and stuff, you know, examined it. They realized that. They can see that they were shaped by aerodynamic forces. And they did also experimentation trying to recreate the shaping and how you do that, you know, in an intense heat event and all the rest of it. And what they basically concluded was the only way that this could happen is if a large body was in in orbit and then it had a superheating event, pieces broke off, you know, melted, hyper, you know, hyperheated and turned into liquid, pooled into spheres, which obviously liquids do in vacuum. So they formed spheres, instantly froze, of course, again, the cold of space. So you have these glass spheres and they said that then they continued on in an orbit from the parent object and they re-entered or they entered the atmosphere at a fairly shallow angle and went through prolonged heating which you don't see in small pieces of debris you know asteroid debris stuff that comes straight down into the planet they just what happens if you have something come straight down mm -hmm. it's superheated and the outside evaporates right. and you end up with at most a very very thin layer of liquid around the core around a cold core so when they come down and pass through the atmosphere, so it's a very flash because the speeds they're traveling at. So there's just an intense heating event. Now, it's just to explain something melting and running back and forming these button shapes. It says it can't be like that. It has to have had time to have melted and start to run back and form these button shapes. So they say it has to be on this decaying orbit from a parent body, right? So now you've got a problem because you've got, well, hang on, that doesn't mesh at all with the idea of an impact at all. Because now you're talking about something in orbit and a decaying orbit of the debris. And this is further followed up by how this australite is distributed. Because a lot of the people who specialize in australite hunting, you know, there's some very passionate people involved in this. And, you know, thanks to them, I have some of the clues to this. But they, they've realized that you tend to find it in clusters. So you'd go out in the outback and you might find, you know, over several, you know, dozen meters or whatever, you'd find pieces of this material mm -hmm. but then maybe not find any for another 500 kilometers right, right. now that's very untypical of some of a you know of a splash form where something's hit and pushed debris out you find you know the debris is just all flown out in a direction you'd have it scattered along that how are, how are these on line. the surface or are these deep in the earth these are on the surface and this okay. is nothing baffled people as well they're, they're seven hundred eighty thousand years old how come they're so often on the surface and look like they've been there from five minutes ago which is another thing that's baffled people. For a long time, they said they can't be that old because they don't look weathered and worn. They're often not in a lower layer um, that people just find them. They, they, they fear maybe they get washed down in stream beds. Are they air, in I, areas where there's no like wind or water erosion? or? In some in some cases. In other cases, they're in places where you could argue erosion and others not. And there, there was arguments over this that you know they can't be as old as people are saying. Saying they're on the surface. It doesn't make sense. Look at them. They look like they're unweathered. Now, if you think that some of these things maybe were still going around because they were in space, then they may not have been there long. And this is another this is another issue that you say, okay, you can't posit that 
unless you're positing a strange answer to this problem. Right. Because if the material is up there from something that blew up and it, some of it is still going around and it's gradually in decaying orbits, right, you could have additional falls over thousands of years, mm. right? There's some of that material, although the event that caused it is 780,000 years old, it doesn't necessarily mean that it all fell that same day, right? Mm. So that's another interesting angle to that. But the point is, if you find this stuff in, um, in clusters, yeah, that meshes far better with what's called aerial bursts, where you have, this is a geologist who, you know, spent a long time on this topic, who points out that if, you know, you've got larger pieces of debris coming from an object that's kind of broken up in the atmosphere, that as those, some of those larger pieces come through, they will explode in like almost nuclear bomb type explosions. The material from those pieces, those larger pieces, will then blast down onto the ground. So you get then a, a cluster of debris, right? And then you might have another one come breaks the atmosphere a thousand kilometers away and explodes. And right. then suddenly you have the reason for why you find these things in clusters, because they're not being ejected out of a, a crater. They're coming, they're coming down from exploding chunks. Right. And, um, the same guy points out that when you get to Laos, where you find the end of this debris trail, where there's pieces that are 20 kilos in weight, right, big chunks, which would not go far from an impact site. Um, he also found there that there was, and this is kind of the clincher in some respects for the aerial burst argument, was he found that on one of the pieces from Muong Nong, there was, in Laos, that he found that there was welding between what would have been a cooled area of the tectite and a second piece that would have had to have come down hours late he said it would have had to have fused with it hours later it's clear that you have a cool piece which then has hot material splash onto it mm. he says again he says just by that luck of the draw two of these air one aerial burst has already been cooling on the ground and another one has come over hours later and exploded and the material is fused with some of that on the ground he said that's the clincher signature for aerial bursts you know then that you're dealing with aerial bursts right that this is not just a this is not just a standard impact event Right. right. So, so now you're seeing, hang on a minute. So the, the main hypothesis that everyone's going with, the evidence doesn't fit it well, right? You have all these problems which don't fit with it well. Also, you have the missing crater. And now you touched on earlier that there's been a story about a crater being found. And that's, that's correct. Just this, I think is last, well, a few months ago, there yeah. was a big story. But bear in mind, this is kind of funny because this story has not been really, known to the public for years and i'd never heard of it you know when i got involved with this and isn't it funny that after my book came out and i've been tackling this suddenly a story comes out about the seven hundred eighty thousand year old impact on the australites and mm -hmm. you know which has been quite funny to see almost like the universe throwing a bit of a, a curveball there and bringing out the story because yes i mean the missing crater has been part of the mystery because they, well look you should have a 40 kilometer diameter i think, I think it's 40 yeah 40 kilometer diameter crater uh, somewhere in Southeast Asia, somewhere probably Laos or Southern China. Uh, and it should be very young, you know, in terms of geology, 780,000 years old. You know, we find craters that are a billion years old, mm -hmm. right? So this is very young. And this has been one of the mysteries. Where's the crater? Where's the crater? Now, there's a team that very recently have said that they think they may have found it. But there's problems with that. First of all, they found an anomaly, right, under rocks. Right. They have not actually found, you know, a definitive crater, Right. It may be. And I personally, I, I expect it probably could be a crater. But then there's a couple other problems that they have there. And they don't seem to refer to one of them being that it's far too small because the, what they found is, uh, I think, about 12 kilometers in diameter. 
right? Mm -hmm. And all the calculations suggest for this amount of material and for it to get all the way down to Antarctica, that you're dealing with something enormous, like probably a couple of miles across, impacting at a colossal speed right. and throwing this material into space, you know, and down again and all this stuff to try and make it work. So now you're down to a 12 kilometer diameter crater. It's like, hang on a minute, that's nowhere near the calculations. Um, and the second problem is which they don't seem to be aware of is that there are multiple impacts 780,000 years ago, which we, we, I'll come to separately because it's part of this story. But they seem to be blissfully unaware of this fact that you have impacts of objects in Antarctica, in Central America, in Tasmania. So what I feel is that what they have found is probably is a buried crater, but it does not fit with the australites. Mm. It fits just as a, as a possible lost crater, but it's small and it's unlikely to be at the center of this and again i'll come to that's another connected bit which i have right. to tackle i very quickly say i mean that in the information i do tackle this because in valerie's book one of the things that this information suggested was that at the same time as the destruction of a craft in space that five years later there is a intelligent engineered event involving a, a basically a um, bombarding of the planet asteroids pulled in from the asteroid belt and used to bombard the planet mm. right and from all sides and now when she wrote that book and just bear this in mind this was 2003 okay now nobody knew anything about there being a bombardment of the planet you know you'd have thought oh well you know i've heard about that you know that's an extraordinary event you know we'd all know about it mm -hmm. they only discovered this in sort of 2015 2016 it turns out that yes that 780,000 years ago there was indeed a multi-directional bombardment and not by one large object breaking up which you'd think at first because that might explain it turns out no the chemical composition of the different sites shows that these are different objects now you're getting to something weird because right you know why would that happen because instead of having the every 10,000 or 100,000 years you know you get one of these big objects hits now you're saying that at the same period that we've had this object breaking up in space that you're also getting a bombardment of as different asteroids suddenly coming from all directions and hitting our planet as exactly as this intelligence has told someone you know right, exactly right. as they've told them so this of what we see now um, being found at the moment i suspect is one of the impact sites from this event but the paper that these people have produced does not mention the fact that you have multiple impacts at that time. And I think that that's sloppy at best to not even mention that, that hang on a minute, there's several impacts at that time. Why aren't we comparing that? You know, why aren't we mentioning that? And why don't they mention the fact that for years and years it's been calculated this would have to be at least a 40 kilometer diameter crater, you know, so. Uh, I understand that they want to solve the mystery and there's kudos if you do that, right? Mm -hmm. But you, you have to play by the ball, you know, play, you have to play by the rules and you have to deal with the science and the physics of it. The, the crate, what they're talking about is a crater that would not fit with this. Right. I wanted to ask you uh, and, and all for the reasons I just gave you as what's well. The, it wouldn't uh, explain aerial bursts. It wouldn't explain the, the tectite buttons down in southern Australia. You know, it doesn't explain any of that. Right. I wanted to ask you, what's the difference between these tectites and like let's say the microspherules or micro diamonds and whatever that are, they they're finding correlated to the younger dryas impact in yeah i think it was that comet enki i think is mm -hmm. um so is there any commonality or is there any you know do you see any similarities because i know they are finding stuff and physical evidence of that as well Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure about terms. I mean, composition would be different, I imagine, very different. I mean, as far as I know, only the tectites have these kind of levels of silica, you know, this 
70%. Other than that, I mean, I don't know much about the formation of the microspherals for the for the younger dry sea impact events, to be honest. I, I don't really know the ins and outs of how that's done. All I, can, all I can say is that, to my knowledge, there's no other, right? Um, you know, pro- there's nothing produced like that uh, with that level of silica. Um, that makes them particularly unique. Yeah. And again, I, I don't know how homogenous those microspherals are. Maybe they are fairly homogenous. Um, but yeah, in terms of these glasses, certainly that the tectites are very unique. Uh, again, I would have thought being from the flash kind of explosion, there must be some kind of mixing of elements in some of those microspherals. I'm not sure because I don't know the ins and outs of it. I can only I can only speculate a little bit and say that they're definitely not from the same kind of processes. Okay. Uh, but you know, obviously, it related again. Of course, you've got heat, large heat events and pressure events and stuff. So I mean, there would be certainly some some overlap but yeah i can't say enough to give them a proper contrasting i gotcha well do you guys have an extra 10 15 minutes can we do maybe like a little patreon uh segment with you guys here yeah sure, sure. yeah i mean hopefully that's given people an overview of yeah i think that you did a great job explaining yeah. your hypothesis and then the physical mm-hmm. evidence and stuff absolutely and obviously we got to talk about some other interesting stuff as well but um yeah so everybody go check out exogenesis hybrid humans it's uh on amazon it's available now um and um is there anything else you want to plug or say um well we have an upcoming video well document short documentary version of some of the material in the book and that should be done around about the middle of june okay. so if people want to keep a, an eye on my website so you know obviously i will promote that once it's up and ready yeah and I have the links to your website, and I have the links to the book down below. Um, and uh, we appreciate your time and you coming back on. And we appreciate, uh, obviously, your research and your, uh, you know, obviously looking for physical evidence and trying to a- actually add some sort of scientific value to a subject that there's usually a lot of speculation, but not really a lot of evidence. So, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, we appreciate it. And uh, I look forward, I started reading your book, look forward to finishing it and um keep doing your research keep plugging away and um you know that's it everybody stay safe out there and everybody love everybody it's all about love and peace people that's all it's about so thank you very much for having us on i hope you enjoyed it thank you thank you danielle we appreciate you coming it was fun to talk to you too i know we haven't had you on yet but uh maybe we can have you both on next time and we can get into some more of that uh shamanic and esoteric stuff for sure yeah, it'd be great. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Uh, well, yes, people can find Danny if they want readings or shamanic kind of services. That she has a website about daniellafenton.com, so people can find her. Okay, cool. And for anybody uh, listening, we are going to finish this. And if you're interested in listening to a little bit more of our conversation, I'm going to be posting it probably on Patreon later. And uh, again, everybody stay safe out there, and we love you. Mm-hmm.